to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. Scripture reading is in Romans chapter 15 beginning at verse 7. If you're reading from the blue Bible, it's on page 949. Romans 15 at 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, in Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, go to God in prayer and seek his face. Lord, we are needy people, people wounded and hurt in so many ways, people under pressure from different directions. Lord, there are so many among us under financial difficulty, loss of jobs, marriage pressures, family issues. Lord, there are problems with children that we're struggling with. We bring a host of brokenness into your presence, Lord. And we pray that you would minister to our need. We pray that your word would give us strength and encouragement and hope. That we will find in you peace and joy. We will find in you a replenishment of amazement and adoration. Lord, we can only be sustained by worship. We can only be sustained that by your being bigger than everything else in our lives. And for your promise to outweigh everything that threatens us. For your commitment and your covenant to be deeper, more alive, more real to us even than the issues and problems that we face. And for, for your promise and your purpose to define our lives and nothing else. Lord, we, we pray that you would open up your word to us to that end. 
we pray to you in awareness the world is such a torn up place. We pray, Lord, asking for your gospel to go forth. The greatest power and effectiveness in so many nations in which there are so few Christians. We, we think of nations under the darkness of Hinduism and Islam, animism, under the darkness of false versions of even so-called Christianity. We, we think of so many in darkness, Lord, and we think also of your great promises in the Psalms that the nations will come and worship before your throne. That the kingdom of God, though it starts like a mustard seed, it will grow to become the largest plant in the garden. And that a little leaven in the kingdom, it, it leavens the whole lump, that the whole earth, nation after nation, Lord, by your grace, can be so deeply affected by the gospel as to be beyond imagination. You are Lord of the nations, and you've commanded us to make disciples of the nations. Lord, you have not, you have not given up your lordship. You have not handed it over to idols. You retain that lordship. And as we have just read, you have other sheep. You must gather them. They will hear your voice, and we will become one flock. So we pray with expectation, knowing what that would mean, though, for believers throughout the world, for us in particular, that we would be used as instruments in prayer, in giving, in going, in proclaiming right where we are the precious good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for our leadership in this nation. We pray that you would give us righteousness and godliness, that you would give wisdom, that, Lord, even in common grace for leaders in the city level or state level or federal level, that you will give even common grace, Lord, that there can be wisdom in decisions to the end, as Paul says, for us to pray, that the gospel can go forth, that we can live lives of fruitfulness for Jesus Christ and, and have maximum effectiveness in manifesting Him in our society. We pray, Lord, for uh, our troops. We pray for their safety. We pray for their coming home as soon as, as possible, as soon as wisdom would call for it. Lord, we pray that the conflict that is there can be resolved to the greatest benefit of the people there, of the peace of nations, and particularly the moving forth of your gospel in the world. O oh Lord, manifest your kingship. Show forth your greatness, Lord. And particularly show it even now as we come to this word. Display your beauty and glory for our hungry souls, for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> my, uh, I love what my 
granddaughter, probably a little too many grandchildren stories. I try to stay clear, but what can you do? Um, but she, uh, she has fallen in love with her cousin. Uh, Harper has fallen in love with her cousin, uh, Lila, who's a, a bit older. And the way she put it was, now she's got all boy cousins on the other side. That's all it is. Like, so, and one of my favorite pictures is of her with six cousins or five. No, yeah, six, five cousins and her little brother. So six boys. And they're all smiling, looking in the camera. She's got the worst crying face. <laughs> the only girl amongst the boys, you know. And she's the one that couldn't bring herself to the picture. Um, but as she talks about all these boy cousins, the way she put it is, they're my cousins, but Lila is my best friend. So <laughs> it's not good just to be a cousin. It's good to be a best friend. And what we have been seeing in this passage is how we are to be each other's strong friend, how we're to be committed to one another in love, how we're to receive each other no matter our differences, no matter our views of things uh, that are not central to the truth of God, that we are to bear with one another and receive each other. And so this passage in verse 7 reiterates something said earlier in chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one weak in faith, welcome him. It's the same word as verse 7, to welcome one another. It means to receive one another, to accept one another. And later in verse 3 of chapter 14, let the one who abstains from food not pass judgment on the one who eats because God has welcomed him. So there in that passage, the same kind of thing, welcome, receive, accept one another because God has welcomed and accepted you. Same thing here, isn't it? That we're to receive one another because Christ has welcomed us. So it, this begins uh, three things that we're going to talk about uh, that, that are revealed about the glory of God in this passage. First, that the, the uh, God of uh, the welcome of God in Christ Jesus, the welcome of God in Christ Jesus, and then together we're going to take the faithfulness and mercy of God in Christ Jesus, and finally the hope of God in Christ Jesus. So the welcome of God, the faithfulness and mercy of God, and then the hope. Of God. Now, interesting that the glory of God is shown in Christ's welcome of us in verse 7. Christ has welcomed you for unto the glory of God. The whole of his work is described in this way. Everything that he's accomplished for us is described in this one shorthand that he has welcomed us. Now, you think of someone welcoming you as they did Paul in Acts 28 when he had shipwreck and he landed on the island of Malta. And it said it was raining and it was cold. And they said the inhabitants there were so kind that they built a fire and they welcomed us and received us. Uh, Same word there. So you think of yourself coming in from sleeting, uh, freezing rain and someone welcoming you and serving you a hot meal, a warm fire, a cozy bed as you feel the storm outside. 
so there's this idea of welcome, or as Paul in Philemon uh, chapter, uh, well, it's just one chapter, but verse 17, is he's commending Onesimus, who apparently was a runaway slave, and yet he was converted and became tremendously helpful to Paul. And now Paul is sending him back to his master Philemon, and he says, receive him even as you had received me. So the same word of receiving. So you get a feel for what that means of receiving each other. But I'd like to up the ante a little bit of thinking of receiving that was very costly. Uh, that of those who received the Jews during the Holocaust. You think of the cost of that, of receiving, accepting, of welcoming them. I read of Arena Sindler, who was a social worker that was able to go into the ghetto where the Jews were herded. And she would go into the ghetto to uh, test for typhus, which the Nazis were very scared would break out. Hand trolleys. She would have packages in uh, a tram or uh, a package in an ambulance. And in the package were children, babies, packed up (laughs) with air holes. She got out. 2,500 children uh, by just getting them through these, smuggling them out this way. She herself was tortured and imprisoned by the Nazis and still sought to get those children out. And as they talk about other who rescued Jews Uh, One article says there were peasants and nannies, aristocrats, clergy, bakers, doctors, social workers, storekeepers, school children, police officers, diplomats, and grandmothers. (laughs) And these people recognize, one, the danger that the Jew was in, in spite of the propaganda of the Nazis. But they also had to assume the responsibility of helping and risk the potential consequences. Public hangings were normal for anyone that helped the Jews. Going to prison camp, on-the-spot shootings were consequences of helping these, in, these enemies of the state. Now, there's a welcoming, there's an accepting and receiving That could cost your life. That could cost everything. You can see pictures of a burning peasant's house that had housed Jews, and now their house was no more. That's the way to think about this with Jesus. Receiving us at a cost so great it can't even be imagined. Endangering himself, and there was the possibility that you would be endangered, of course. Not all were caught. Jesus knew that he for sure would be put to death if he were to accept us because he had to make us acceptable, right? To bring us into the acceptance of God. He had to, in the words of Peter, bear our sins in his body on the cross. And so he did. And in this way, accepted us. 
And like these rescuers who had to go and find these Jews who were themselves imprisoned in various ways to find them, to bring them in. So Jesus, as we just read from John 10, uh, as a shepherd, seeks out and finds to gather in to receive his sheep. And he finds us even though we are enemies, even though we're highly undesirables, even though we have made ourselves criminals in his sight. Even then, he is seeking and receiving us, receiving those who had made themselves his enemies, turning our backs upon him and committing spiritual adultery, every single one of us. And yet for us, for us, he sacrificed himself to receive us. And he receives us warmly and gladly. Anyone who trusts Him, whatever the shape and size of your sin, it doesn't matter. Whatever the sickening nature of your sin. And the more any of us looks into our sin, we see the sickening nature of it. It doesn't matter how long our sin has endured and persisted. It doesn't matter how pervasive it is, how repugnant it is in our lives. I love the end of this uh, verse in a a hymn I read this week, as he's thinking about why, just as we sang now, uh, how sweet and awful, how is it that we came to Christ and others did not, and it was only the grace of God. And this is talking about the same thing. And he's saying, why is it that I came to know Christ? "'Tis due to sovereign grace alone that off selects its proudest foes. Isn't that great? It's only sovereign grace because often it selects the proudest foes, which I'm one of them. So you may be one of the proudest foes. You may be completely given over to sin. It does not matter. He will receive you. He works and has labored and died so that you can be acceptable. You can be received. And He welcomes us in order to work for us. He welcomes us not so that He would sit and do nothing. I've been reading in uh, Samuel Rutherford's little book, The Loveliness of Christ. And he has so many wonderful little thoughts in here. And here's one. It is our heaven to lay many weights and burdens upon Christ. Let him find much employment for his calling with you. (laughs) I love that. Let Christ be constantly busy to meet your need. Because this is his employment. This is what he is there for. He is fully available to work for your need every single day. He is a friend and delights to be burdened with these employments. And so he welcomes you to work for you. He welcomes you to heal you. It says, he says, he delights to take up fallen. He uses this word for children, bairns, B-A-I-R-N-S. So you want to throw one out there. says, yes, the little bairns, (laughs) gather them in (laughs) if you want to appear ridiculous. Um, He delights to take up fallen bairns and to mend broken brows. Binding up of wounds is his office. 
So He receives you to be employed for your good. He receives you to bind up your broken brow because your wounds are His office. The healing of your wounds is His office. And this is all, as he says here, for the glory of God. This is what God wants to be known for. That I welcome sinners of the proudest foes. I welcome and receive them and make them acceptable through the death of my son. I want to be known for that. If God wants to be known for that, then you can expect that he will welcome you when you come to him confessing your sin. This is who he really is. This is the name he wants to make for himself. And gloriously, it is eternal. It is a, an acceptance and a welcome that is eternal. It will, we will never be turned away. In fact, we've just begun to taste of this welcome. Uh, Rutherford talks about our little inch of time. He says, this little inch of time of suffering that we have, it's not worthy of our first night's welcome when we get to heaven. This little inch of time is not worthy of the first night's welcome when we get to heaven. And so the welcome continues. The reception is all of life. And then this glorious final fulfillment of reception in Christ. And it's in this context that he says... Welcome one another. See? As you're welcomed by Christ. As He has sacrificed everything to accept you and receive you just as you are. Welcome one another with the same kind of love. Receive one another into your home, into your life. Maybe picture that you're bringing people within the circle of your life, in the circle of your time and your affections, your protection, your encouragement, your kindness, your attentiveness, your prayers, your concerns, your service. You see, into the circle of all you have to offer a person. So this receiving, even as Jesus so actively works in our lives when he receives us, we're actively working in one another's lives. It's not just that, oh, I'll say hi to you at church. <laughs> I won't neglect you. I'll get to know your name. But it means that we're learning to open up our lives to one another. And it certainly means that we're opening up our hearts to other people. That we, we often, in some ways, this has not been a good thing in the church because it's misused in, in our understanding. But the talk about asking Christ into your heart, Right. Well, we might more legitimately say, how about other people into your heart, right? How about asking other people into your heart? Uh, for some of us, you know, the heart's like a lockdown. There's no, nothing going in, nothing coming out there, right? Uh, there's a quarantine on our heart. We're keeping all that ugly pain inside and we're not letting any other kind of pain, the chance of any more coming in. And and this manifests itself in the control we exercise around us or the anger with which we uh, govern people or even humor or shyness or retreat. Uh, I read this little section in Sports Illustrated this week uh, on Jerry West, who's just written a biography. And 
West as a child, he, he's one of the most famous, if you don't know, basketball players ever, some of the greatest statistics ever. Um, but he had a very hard life as a child and was abused by his father. And when he, his 21-year-old son, uh, uh, brother, David, uh, died in the Korean War, it became even harder at home. Uh, and at one point, he more or less snapped with his dad and let him know that uh, he would he would take something that was under his gun and turn it on him if he ever came at him again. It got that bad. But listen to what uh, he says about this. I became defiant. You couldn't get in trouble where I grew up, but if I'd lived in a big city, I've always wondered if I'd have ended up in prison. Now, he had he'd been working so hard, devoted to this beat-down dirt basketball court, a little rim that he put up, just absolutely devoted to it. But listen how he puts it now. Now the work on the beat down dirt court grew deadly serious. And it, he describes it in this way, the construction of another home, a perfect one, hinging it on a jump shot more classic and clean than a Roman arch and furnishing it with all manner of moves and fakes and spins. He's talking about his jump shot here. Okay. But he's saying a jump shot that became his home, became where he could be safe, he could be protected. A structure so airtight that not even the bleak fatalism of his poor mining community could enter it. So impeccable that not even his father could defile it. A place where the wrong son didn't die. That's what he thought, that the wrong son died. He should have been the one to die. But you see, he created in this place, in his own heart, in his own life, a way to cope with everything going on around him. And many of us, in some way or another, all of us, have formed ways to cope with life, formed ways to shut ourselves down so that we do not open ourselves up to people. We're not vulnerable to others, even to our own mates. And so part of receiving each other Part of admitting one another into our lives is to admit one another into our hearts and to create the kind of atmosphere for one another that it's safe, you know, that it's safe, that I could finally unburden to another human being the pain, the struggles that I have with sin and the things that have happened to me and the things that I've done to other people. So the starting place, though, is to begin to taste the very welcome and acceptance of Jesus Christ who has borne our sins in His body on the, Christ, on the cross so that we no longer would have to hide, but we could come into the open and receive forgiveness for our sins. Well, this welcome then, move on, moving on more, more quickly uh, to the faithfulness and mercy of God in Christ, Notice how he puts it, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That means a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, the New Living Translation gives a good uh, synopsis of this. It puts this. It puts it this way, to show that God is true to his promise. Okay? That's basically what he's saying. That he... Christ served the Jews to show that he was faithful to the promise, 
But here's the interesting part of the promise. It wasn't so much the land. It wasn't so much that they would be a large nation themselves. It was the promise that you in your seed will the nations be blessed. This is the great promise that he is bringing to fulfillment. That in your seed, that is the seed of the Messiah himself, the the one who came, Jesus Christ, that indeed the nations will be blessed. This is uh, in Galatians 3. Paul talks about this in verse 14, that the promise to Abraham now finally has its fulfillment because the Spirit has been poured out to everybody. And you can see how for Paul, this is the grand, glorious, huge fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham is that this relationship to Yahweh is breaking out to the nations. It's kind of ironic because most of the Jews weren't believing in this great thing. But nonetheless, it is intended as the most glorious fulfillment of this promise. And it's amazing, isn't it, that he is a servant to those even as they reject him. That he is faithful to them even as they betrayed him. That he's confirmed the promises even as they pronounce condemnation upon him. And it shows the faithfulness of God in the face of even the rejection of the Jews. He will fulfill his promise. Talk about extreme makeover or extreme games. This is extreme faithfulness. Extreme faithfulness to a nation that by and large had turned its back upon him. He still fulfills his promise. And through Messiah brings blessing to the whole earth. So it shows when he commits himself to your good, it is for good. And it ultimately doesn't depend on your faithfulness. It depends on his faithfulness. It depends on his grip of you, not your grip of him. He follows through with his promises no matter what. And is particularly in this passage faithful to his mercy. Right? He is faithful to show mercy to the Gentiles. And it really should have been and could have been for the Jews this humbling, wonderful thing that of all people, he used us to bring blessing to the whole world. Kids, think if you had come up in the future, you come up with an invention that is able to heal broken bones. Just think of that. You have an invention And you can imagine how it's going to be spread throughout the whole world, how thousands and millions of people everywhere have their bones healed because of your invention. And it would bring great honor to you. It would be great honor to your family, wouldn't it? That you would be a part of something that brought such benefit to the world. That's why Paul can talk about this, of the great fulfillment of the promise that you, from you Jews, was the blessing that would heal the nations. Even though, by and large, they didn't recognize it. Even though, by and large, they turned their back upon it. God is going to bring about His mercy as He promised. And that's what all these quotes are about. That... The praise of the Gentiles is a praise for His mercy. Uh, Glorifying God for His mercy. Isn't that beautiful that it's for His mercy that God wants to be glorified? 
right? For His mercy. Does, obviously, He is willing to show you mercy and me mercy because He wants to glorify His mercy. In this great old uh, hymn book that I found actually in the, uh, near the uh, coal bin in a downtown church where we were uh, for several years, but has this great few verses. You wretched, hungry, starving, poor, behold a royal feast where mercy spreads her bounteous store for every humble guest. See, Jesus stands with open arms. He calls, he bids you come. Guilt holds you back and fear alarms. But see, there yet is room, room in the Savior's bleeding heart. There love and pity meet, nor will he bid the soul depart that trembles at his feet. Oh, come with his children, taste the blessings of his love. Oh, that free invitation to mercy. The whole of Romans, the argument ended in verse 32 of chapter 11. He's consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The whole point of everything I've said, Paul says, is so that all would come to the point where they stand before God and ask for mercy. So he wants to bring about this happy praise in your heart for his mercy. Isn't that wonderful? To bring in your heart this happy praise for His mercy, this sense of relief and peace and safety and protection. There's no question of your works to get it or your performance, your accomplishment, your winning acceptance. It's all mercy. That's what He must be glorified for. And if you propose any other way to approach God, then you're denying His glory. If you want to earn your way to God, then you're denying the glory of His mercy. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well. It is well with my soul. Because my sin is totally taken care of in Christ. Totally It's only mercy by which I can be received. Just think of how Christ said to the Jews, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Do you think he's not committed to mercy when he's angered that they will not show mercy? Because that's what I'm about is mercy. And you think of the public, of the... uh, The Pharisee standing before God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you, Lord, that I tithe all that I get and I'm not like adulterers or like this tax gatherer. And all the tax gatherers says, Lord, have mercy upon me, this sinner. And it's like God says, that's what I'm looking for. (laughs) There you go. That's a prayer. That's the only prayer I want to hear is glorify me for my mercy. Not bringing a parade of what you've done or what you've accomplished or anything in the world, but just coming to me and saying, Lord, I must have mercy. So he promises mercy. It says in Micah, he loves mercy. It says in Psalm 145, 9, his mercies are over all his works as though every single part of the earth is touched by his mercy. He loves it so much. 
And so, do you and I see our need of that mercy, though? And, and really, it starts right there to think how unmerciful we are. How little we are like God in that respect. How little capacity we have to love our enemies, those who've wronged us, just to start there. That's how unlike God we are and why we're so in need of His mercy, because we're so unmerciful. We're so about ourselves. We're so about, so against in our hearts, sacrificial love. We're desperately far from that kind of love. But He wants us to be joyfully amazed at this mercy, at perfect rest in His mercy. Nothing intruding or taking away from that enjoyment of His mercy, dislodging that joy in His mercy. To be marked by this, that we give glory to God for His mercy. And of course, we have many things that we go through, many horrible difficulties. But the foundation for your life is always the glory of God and the mercy of God that is never taken away from you. And of course... Interestingly, this mercy continues. Mercy begun is continued. Mercy given is mercy promised in the future. And so, in these very verses where the Gentiles are rejoicing over His mercy, look where it ends in verse 12. In Him with the Gentiles, hope. Which brings us to our last point, is to touch on. If you believe in His mercy then you must believe in the future mercy that's coming down the pike for you. Now, that's a happy thought, Peter, (laughs) from Hook, right? Talk about a happy thought, is that the mercy that I've enjoyed now sets the tone. It defines my life. Every day of my life is marked by this mercy. It's not just a one-day mercy, a one-week, one-month. It's mercy from now on. And so the psalmist says, you're all familiar with it, says, surely it is absolutely certain that goodness and mercy will tail me all the days of my life. (laughs) That's how he ends that psalm. That's what's going to happen to me. That That is my life. Goodness and mercy, follow me, tell me. I never will get rid of them the whole of my life. Or Lamentations 3, that his mercies are new every morning. He says, they never come to an end. You think, surely, no, no, there's some more coming. No, oh, there's some more. You're like, we've described it before, like a line of trucks, and you can't even see the end of them. And they're all going to come on and dump their mercy in your garage, (laughs) in your house. Great is thy faithfulness. That's why... The mercy and faithfulness, you see, produce this great hope. That's why 24 times in Psalm 136, it says, His steadfast love endures forever. (laughs) It's always there. Mercy every day so that we can say before Him, Lord, I will enjoy Your abundant mercies today, Lord. I will walk in Your sure mercies. I will delight in Your mercy. I will live out Your mercy today. I glorify You for Your mercy. And it produces hope in me. And that's all of what he said earlier in Romans 8, isn't it? That it means all things will work together for good. It means if Christ died for me, he will freely give me all good things. It means 
all, nothing can be against me now because God is for me. It means nothing will separate me from the love of God. There's no one to condemn me. He's infinitely bigger than anything I face. And there's the final resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth that trumps everything, even death. His salvation governs my life. And you see the, the kind of guts of it in verse 13. There's joy and peace in what? In believing. In believing in His goodness. This believing brings about this joy and hope, a joy and peace, which of course leads me to hope. And He is a God of hope. He is the God who brings hope. He, he wants to be known as that kind of God. He defines Himself as the God of hope. And so as we trust and believe in all that He's done for us in Christ, He wants us to experience this joy and peace that issues in hope. And He even says that the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will abound in hope. We'll be strong in hope. We'll have a great expectation for what God will do in our lives personally, in our relationship to our family, in our relationships within this body, and what He will do as our witness to the world. Because you know that He wants to just keep making more and more Gentiles glorify God for His mercy. He just wants that circle to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. More and more and more Gentiles and, and Jews as well, glorifying God for His mercy and will so use us in that way. And, and as we abound in hope, you see, it's an honor to His great name. It's an honor to His mercy. It's an honor to the security and faithfulness of His love. And you and I need to ask, what are the enemies of our hope? What are the enemies of your hope? You know, for some, it could be finances. For some, children or family or health or marriage or the most serious things. But even those things are not to counterbalance and wipe out hope and joy and peace. These are to govern your life. These flavor your life that you bring to everything else in your life. Knox Chamlin was a, a professor of mine in... Reformed Seminary, and he recently has been diagnosed with leukemia. And he has this in his blog, one purpose of suffering is to produce hope. And he's speaking from Romans 5, where it talks about suffering produces hope. To experience suffering in a context of regular communion with my sovereign God and Heavenly Father and of ever stronger commitment to the manifold truth of Scripture I may expect my hope of glory to deepen. Calvin put, put it this way. If when we suffer, we willingly submit to God as we taste His goodness and the fatherly love, it renders all things sweet to us. This patience cherishes and sustains hope in us. So there's this idea in the midst of suffering to taste His goodness and fatherly love in the midst of suffering that sweetens your life even at that point. That brings about hope. Because then you realize nothing can really touch me. 
Nothing is as important as His love to me and His grace and mercy to me. It needs me no matter what. So I have that hope. Even in suffering, hope doesn't diminish or have to diminish. It could be the very place where it flourishes. Verse 4, talk about a chagrin to the enemy. <laughs> talk about Satan throwing up his hands. What are you to do when you bring all hell to bear on this person? And he just hopes all the more in his God. Fellowships all the more. Taste the sweetness of Jesus in the midst of this. Such can be our life. And this God who welcomes us, who is faithful and merciful, and who is the God of hope. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we rest in your greatness and your goodness. We rest in your sovereign mercy. Oh, what a faithful God you are. How good to us, Lord. Oh, gracious Jesus, that you have welcomed us and made us acceptable, we enemies, and you've received us into your bosom and fold us close to you to belong to you forever. O oh Lord, give us great joy and peace in believing. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who created the earth, may that Holy Spirit cause us to abound in hope to the glory of our great God. Amen. A pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away